Okay, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, as we have been for a long time, and we're going to finish up chapter 12 today. We're going to take verses 41 through 44, just that last paragraph there. I almost included it in the sermon last week, but I thought it would be a, a good time, uh, a good standalone here uh, in its, for, or I mean, this paragraph for its own sermon. Um, but I'm going to preach on something today that I normally don't preach on. I typically don't preach sermons over, over tithing or giving, uh, and you know that about me if you've come here for any extended amount of time. I actually got curious. I went onto our website, and I was like, how many sermons have I preached on giving since the, since the journey started? And, you know, you can go on our website. When you go on the sermons page, there's different ways that you can search sermons. You can search by the ser- sermon series, or you can search sermons based on uh, a text of scripture, or you can, you can actually search for topics whenever you go to our website. And so I was like, because every time we upload a sermon, we, we generally attach, um, you know, topics, what that sermon was about topically, and then that way, if someone goes to our website and they want to find a, a sermon over any specific topic, they can look for that topic, and every sermon I've ever preached that has anything to do with that topic will pop up. So I was like, how many sermons have I preached where, like, giving or tithing or an offering was the topic of the sermon. And I I found all these other topics first. Uh, I've preached evidently uh, like 17 sermons over over the end times, 14 different sermons over false teachers, 15 sermons over holiness, like 24 sermons over miracles. And and then I I typed in giving there. How many many sermons are giving? There was one. (laughs) There was one. In 10 years of preaching, the result was one. And I'm like, oh, man. That's probably not good. That's probably not, not a good thing. Because giving, giving and, and participating in worship through an offering or a tithe, that is a positive thing. It is a good thing. That's something that God wants us to participate in. And so if I avoid preaching on it, I'm really not helping in any way. I, I, I shouldn't avoid this topic, but I do. I just do. It's just part of who I am part of the, I'm that way because of the experiences that I've had, and maybe you don't like hearing sermons over giving because of the experiences that you've had in church and things like that. Like, one of the reasons I don't like preaching about giving is because I don't want to be lumped in to all of these, like, charlatan preachers on TV who are just constantly shaking people down for money. Like, anytime you hear them preach or speak, open their mouth, it's about why you need to give them more money. And they're just constantly beating that drum, and it's just, it, it, they're just badgering people constantly. It drives me nuts. And so I was like, oh, man, I, I have, I think I, because of that, I have developed, like, this fear of preaching on uh, giving. And, and another, another side of this, like, when it comes to the journey, one question that I, I ask myself as, as the pastor of this church, if I weren't a pastor here, would I attend here? You know, would, would I actually go to this church if I wasn't the pastor? That's a healthy question for a pastor to routinely ask himself. And so if I went to a church where they were constantly elevating the offering plate above most things and, and badgering me for money 24-7, I just wouldn't go there. That would be a major problem for me. If I felt like I was constantly being harassed for more money, I wouldn't go there. I've even been to conferences where they promote this, you know, that like that badgering your people for more money constantly is actually a virtuous thing. 
I, I went to a church planter conference, a, a, a church planters conviction, or convention. I've been to tons of them over the years. And I went where there's, there was this speaker who was talking about how important it is to teach about giving on a routine basis. And, and you could tell this guy, you know, he, he was the type of guy he really cared, really cared how he looked, right? He had the $100 haircut, you know, had a $1,000 outfit. And, and, and he would just talk about how every single Sunday at his church, he was talking about why his church had so much money, and he, even though it was a young church and he was a church planter, he would say, because we dedicate 15 minutes every single Sunday just to the offering. I was like, wow, 15 minutes. He pre they preach on giving for 15 minutes every single Sunday. He said he has an elder in his church that his job as an elder was to get up after his sermon and speak for 15 minutes, somehow connect whatever he had preached on to giving, and he does that for 15 minutes just to prepare people to give, and like the pinnacle of their, like the top of the mountain every Sunday for their church service was after the sermon in a time of sacrificial giving, and, and he was basically telling us all, like, hey, the, the reason all you church planters are broke is because you don't, you, don't, you don't talk about giving enough, and you need to do it like us, you're doing it wrong, and I was just like, oh, man. I don't think I'd last at his church for 15 minutes. I, I, just, I couldn't handle it. I just couldn't do it. And so because of all of this like yuckiness that I feel about how the Christian church has been guilty of warping and twisting and, and uh, uh, talking about giving too much, I, I feel like every time I, I get ready to preach a sermon over anything remotely close to giving, uh, I gotta like protect myself, like or apologize in advance. I hate that I'm that way. It's true though. I'm like trying to put myself in bubble wrap here <laughs> before I preach on giving. But why? Why are we that way? Why are we so protective of our money? Why are we so uh, antsy when this comes up? Maybe those are good questions to ask ourselves as we walk through this text today. But you know, another reason I don't preach on giving a whole lot is because we have a belief here at the journey. We believe, we're, and this is, this is part of our DNA, this is one of the most important things that we do here. We have a strong conviction when it comes to expository preaching. We have a specific style of doing Sunday morning worship and, and preaching Sunday morning sermons. It's called expository preaching, and, and here's all that is. That's a, that's a technical way to refer to a really simple concept. We want to go into the text, and we want to preach that text the way it was intended to be preached. And here's what that means. We go through books of the Bible, we, or, or maybe a paragraph, or, a, uh, you know, a, or just a single verse. And we want, our, our goal when we get into the Bible is to discover the original intent of that paragraph, or of that book, or of that verse. That is our main goal. Every time we crack open our Bibles, and the reason I, I, I just harp on you guys like, one thing I do badger you to do is to bring your Bibles and be looking at the text as I preach is because the goal is not for me to, to be clever or to come up with topics or to entertain you. The goal is for all of us, including me, is, is to look at this text and what was the original intent of that text, and then we just, we just let that be the intent of the text. I don't try to, I don't try to inject something there, a meaning there that's not actually there. I don't try to take that text out of context and use it in a way that it wasn't intended to use. I, I, we're just trying to 
understand the Bible for what it is and how it was intended to be used. And so today's text, today's text, we are in this moment in which it has a lot to do with giving. And so when we upload the sermon later today, regardless of how bad it's about to be or good or whatever, the topic we're going to put there is giving, offering, tithing. So now we're going to have two sermons on the website about giving after today. But the passage today, it's, it's about giving and these details of this really special moment at the temple have inspired Christians for centuries on what a good posture of giving looks like, on, on what the heart behind giving is supposed to be. It, it, it changes the way we think about giving so that we give correctly. Because you can give incorrectly, you can give in a way that is counterproductive, you can give in a way that will cause bitterness to stir in your heart, or you can give in a way that the Bible prescribes, and it's a very, it's a very freeing thing. And it's, it, it's a, it changes how you think about stuff. So, okay, let's remember where we're at. We're in the last week of events leading up to Jesus' death on the cross. We've been studying a day in chapter 12 that's called Question Day. We just call it Question Day. It's not called that in the text. It's because all of these questions keep coming up. Jesus is in the temple, and people are, are coming up and asking him questions with the intent to discredit him, right? And so we've, we've taken uh, a week at a time studying each one of these questions and all of these debates that have gone back and forth. Well, all of that is done now. He's gone toe-to-toe with all of these different religious people, and that part is over. But it's the same day, and these, he, he's been going toe-to-toe most recently with these scribes. And we saw the description of the, of the scribes that Jesus gave to their face last week. It actually had something to do about giving, didn't it? He talked about how pious and pushy and pompous they are and how they would just devour widows' houses, trying to just shake them down for money all the time. He couldn't stand that. Side note, you know, for a lot of people, that's the only exposure to Christianity that they've ever had. I think we never never forget that as a believer. We get frustrated when people won't give church a chance, they won't give Christianity a chance. A lot of times, it's because the only exposure they've had to our faith is this scribe-like behavior. That's a major, major turnoff. And so, so they, they think then when they meet a pastor, they're all just the same. Like, oh, yeah, they're just a crook trying to manipulate you and take your stuff. So I, and as a pastor, I can't tell you how true that is. Like sometimes when I meet someone new, uh, a non-believer who's had some sort of bad experience with a pastor or with a church, they immediately project that onto me. So t- sometimes I meet someone, hey, what do you do for a living? I'm almost afraid to answer sometimes. Like, I'm, I'm a pastor. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, so, sometimes people get excited. Oh, you're a pastor? Great. Oh, I love pastors. And, and all of a sudden, I'm like their best friend. Other times, oh, you're a pastor. Yeah, I know you. Yeah, you're a big jerk. <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever bad experience they've had, they just, they just project that right onto me and and they hate the Christian faith because of some, again, some awful thing they've witnessed. And I always wish I could flesh out those conversations a little more, like I had more time in the moment. Because I feel like a lot of times people like that. The things that they hate about this religion are the same things that we hate. It's the same things that Jesus hates. Like, Jesus couldn't stand crooks like that, religious people who are just pious and pushy and, and trying to take people's stuff and manipulate them. He hated that stuff. I always wish, like, in those moments, like, oh, man, you know, if you just took the time to get to know Jesus a little more, you, you'd love this guy. 
<laughs> you love them. Well, Jesus in this moment, right, he, he, he just, he absolutely, he just got done trashing the scribes. If someone was, was doing something wrong, he had no problem telling them why they were wrong, and he'd be very confrontational about it. He didn't have any problem telling them. But when he saw someone doing right, doing something right or living right, he didn't have, have a problem commenting on that either. So this widow that's in the text that gives an offering, this is going to be someone who is extremely, who's, who is extremely impressive to Jesus. And that's a shocking thing. If you were a first century reader in that culture and in that time, the fact that the, the religious people were not impressive to Jesus and that this poor widow that we're about to study in the text is impressive, that would have been so disorienting to a first century reader. What? The, the seemingly insignificant person is, is who Jesus is wrapped up in and impressed about. Like, th- this, is, this is one of those moments in which we just see how and why this kingdom that Jesus is the king of, it's, it's, so, it's, it's not of this world, right? Because in this world, you would expect the powerful religious people to be what's impressive, but in the, in the, in the kingdom that Jesus is king of, it's, it's, it's the people that are last that, that, are, that are end up being first. It's the people that are seemingly insignificant who are the most significant. And so in this moment, it, have you ever gone people watching at the airport or at, or at the mall? You love people watching? Like you sit and you just watch people and, you know, you're not on your phone. You're just, as they pass through this, uh, you know, in front of you. I, I'm so, like, not gracious when I'm people watching. I think it's a fascinating thing to do. When I'm waiting for a plane or something like that, I love people watching. But I'm usually, when I'm people watching, I'm usually just criticizing everybody that walks by. What is she wearing? You know, like that type of, like that's what I'm doing when I'm people watching. <laughs> but Jesus, he's so much more gracious than me. He's people watching, and he's actually pointing out what is good about someone. So he's so not like me in that regard. But he's, he's in the temple. He's just got done trashing the, the scribes. And they're away from the others. He's just with his disciples. And here is what he sees. Take verses 41 and 42. And as he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box, many rich, rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. So again, he's in... He's in the temple still after teaching. His public teaching is over, and he's just people watching with the disciples. He's in the court of the women, and in the court of, remember the, we talked about this a while, while back, you know, the, the, the temple is kind of like an onion. There's these different areas, and depending on who you were, you could go into different areas of the temple. Well, this is as far as the women could go, and in the court of the women, there were 13 offering receptacles. They were brass. And they were called trumpets because they looked like trumpets. And so they were these giant trumpet-looking brass containers that you would put your offering in, and different ones were designated for different offerings. And so you're going to realize 250,000 people are passing through here, typically on any given Passover, are passing through the temple right by these 13 offering receptacles and you could get a rough idea as to how much money someone had by how much noise they made when they put in metal coins into a brass container. Right? If the rich person was coming through to, to put in their offering and they had a, a lot of coins, there was obviously no paper currency, when they put in an offering and you were people watching, you could hear how much money they had. Wow, 
that person is wealthy. You probably knew by the way they looked, but you could also know by how much noise they made when they, you know, all the change clanging in those trumpets. Well, you can imagine a poor person when they went to put something in those offering receptacles, um, tink, tink, just a little bit of noise, hardly at all. And that poor widow, she didn't make hardly any noise at all, but it was really loud to Jesus. He picked up on it, like, wow, look at this. She put in two copper coins, which make a penny. Now, if you're like me and you're reading in the text, a penny? Was it a wheat penny? How old are these pennies? <laughs> like, right, that's, that's uh, U.S. currency there. Uh, so you, obviously the, the translators are trying to help us understand by the words they are choosing to translate. And so the two copper coins in that time, they were called leptas, L-E-P-T-A. I, I I'm not, not sure exactly how to pronounce that. But that, that lepta, that literally means tiny thing. So the, the smallest coin they had in circulation was literally called a tiny thing. And you put two of these coins together, and now he's trying to appeal to his Greek readers and people who would have been impacted by Rome, Roman currency. You put two of them together, and it would have, it would have amounted to a quadrant, or quadrants. That's, that's, the, that's the smallest Roman currency of that day. And so one one of these coins that this amounts to is one sixty-fourth of a denarius. Maybe you remember reading about a, a denarii in, in, in the Gospels. Sometimes those coins come up. That is one day's wage. You work all day long, you're going to get one denarii. And so what this lady, what this poor widow put into this offering receptacle is one sixty-fourth of one day's wage. So one commentator I read, he did the math. That was eight minutes of work. You work for eight minutes, and you could accumulate at minimum wage what that lady put into the offering receptacle. So, like, if we really wanted to have a modern translation that would appeal to the younger generations today, basically, she put in two Dogecoins into... The, uh, and like the rich people were putting in bitcoins and she was putting in, that, that's my one and only cryptocurrency joke I've ever had and it got no laughs. I worked hard for that, please. Sorry. But it was nothing. It's chump change. She's putting in chump change. But yet this woman, this seemingly insignificant woman putting the, in this seemingly insignificant amount, Jesus is wowed by it. Wow. That's so impressive. It's, so, it's like everything he says sometimes is just upside down. Why, why is this impressive to Jesus? Let's, let's look in verses 43 and 44. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had all she had to live on. Now when Jesus says, truly I say to you, that's your cue to really pay attention to what he's about to say. Jesus would, would use this, you read it in every gospel, sometimes it says, truly, truly I say to you. When he says, truly I say to you, he's saying, stop what you're doing and think about what I'm about to say because it's super important. Truly I say to you, of all of these people we've been watching pass by these offering receptacles, and putting in coins of all of them, all, all quarter of a million of them walking by here, the most generous person, 
the most giving person, the most impressive person of all is this poor widow who put in these two tiny things into this offering receptacle. And so why? Why is that impressive to Jesus? Well, obviously, he's, he's measuring her giving by proportion, not by just, just the amount alone. So, right, the, comparatively, the rich people who are giving to this offering box are throwing in chump change. They're the ones throwing in chump change. But she's the one putting in every, practically everything she had. I mean, it's like, the, you think of it this way, like, if Elon Musk showed up to church today, and he wanted to give an offering. Elon Musk has lately, uh, I, I read where he has, he is, his net worth has gone down by hundreds of billions, and he's still worth hundreds of billions. Like, so don't feel too bad for the guy. But he's worth like, I, I, the, the, the stat I looked up as I was writing the sermon, he's worth 128 billion. That's with a B, a billion, 128 billion dollars. Let's say he shows up to our church and he is just completely impressed, blown away by this sermon. Like, that is the best sermon I've heard on giving in my, in my entire life. And it may be, because he's probably never been to church. But I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. But let, let's just say he's so impressed by that, and he's going to throw in a million dollars into our online giving. Because he's so tech savvy. How would we respond to a million dollar offering? We'd be blown away. A million bucks? It would break our website. I don't even know what would happen there. Where, what would we, how, where would we even start? I guess I'd ask for a raise and not feel guilty. Let's get the pastor a Tesla or something. I don't know. It, it would be a, this life-altering offering. We would be talking about like, wow, this is incredible. What happened to our bank accounts? It's awesome. That amount would be amazing. But uh, in terms of proportion, it's really pathetic, right? It's not impressive at all in terms of, $128 billion is what this guy's worth. He's throwing in a million bucks? Wow. That would be like you getting out of your car today and finding a dime on the sidewalk on the way inside, and you walking by the offering box and being, you're welcome. See that there, huh? Huh? Pretty impressive, isn't it? That would be about, that would be the same thing. Why would you... Puff your chest out over that. I mean, proportionally, that's pathetic. Just like if Elon Musk gave a million dollars, it's not really, not really impressive, proportionally. What is, what is God communicating to us in this text? Well, he, he's not so much, he's not wrapped up in how much we give in the same way you and I typically get wrapped up in how much we give. There's a difference there. And so this is what scripture does. We go into scripture thinking one way, and then we're challenged about how we think, and what we're supposed to do in this time together is we change the way that we think to conform to the way God thinks. And so he's really challenging how we think here. Um, everything is his. Why would he be so impressed by the, the quantity, just in, in terms of quantity alone? Um, why, why would he be impressed by that? As if like we were giving him a Christmas present or something, right? I mean, he's the creator. It's all already his. So like if I'm creator and I want a baked potato, I don't need to wait on somebody to give that or donate that to me, I just create a baked potato. Right, I mean, like if we, if we, if we got together this big chest of gold and presented it to God as if he's gonna be present, uh, you know, impressed by this really good looking full chest of gold, how, how, would you, how do you really expect him to respond to that? Wow, thank you for giving what's mine to me. I appreciate it. 
I, I remember making that on my planet that I created in the solar system I created in the galaxy that I created in the universe that it exists in. <laughs> like, it's all his. Everything is his. The Bible says it like this. Behold, to the Lord your God belong the, the heavens and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it, everything. The heavens and, and the heavens of the heavens is, is like as far as we, we keep making these telescopes and sending them out and finding more and more. We can't see the end of it all. And it's all his. He put it all there. He is the creator of it all. And so he's not, he's not wanting us to be generous people as if he is in need of anything. We have to get that out of our heads. That's why we like people to be generous, especially towards us, because we are in need. But he's not in need of anything. He wants us to be generous because that makes us more like him. You want to be godly? Yes. You want to be like, you want to be like the one who is the great provider, who provides everything for us. He, in light of all the provisions that God has given us in our lives, shouldn't we want to be more generous? I mean, really, that belief that he is sovereign over all things, creator of all things, and, and sustains all things, like that's to make us feel secure. That generosity of God is supposed to inspire us to become more generous. And so we have to change how we have to change up how we think about giving. So typically people, they get excited about giving based on maybe who the pastor of the church is or, who, or, or, what, the, or what denomination the church is a part of or, or whatever. And, but giving an offering isn't about who the pastor is. It's not about, you know, the church you like to go to. Those are surface level reasons. But giving is about who God is. And if we want to give from the right posture, we need to get into the mind and the heart of God and what he gets wrapped up in. So if you want to get serious about giving, if you want to exercise that aspect of faith that we should all exercise, then it has to be something that's done out of faith, out of devotion, out of surrender, out of trust. If it's done from that heart, then you're giving in a way that's expressing your true beliefs about who God is. It's about God. Giving is about God. But if your mentality is merely just trying to give enough to soothe your conscience, you're going to hate giving. It's going to be counterproductive for you. And you're also missing out on what that experience was meant to be. You're taking an experience that we're supposed to have in order to feel free in this sinful and broken world. And you're turning it in some, into something that you feel like you're enslaved to. And if you don't do just enough of, you're going to be in trouble and it's going to stress you out. That's not supposed to be our posture when we're giving. And that's why I say each and every Sunday, like, if you, if, if you can give out of a heart of worship, participate in giving. It's such a freeing thing. It's supposed to be a positive, freeing experience for us as believers. But if you can't give out of that heart, don't give. If you're just giving so you don't feel guilty and stressed out, stop giving. I, like, I, I don't, we don't, we don't want that. We don't want that happening here. That's counterproductive. It's going to make you bitter towards the church. It's going to make you, you're going to, if you give reluctantly like that, it's just going to make you feel like this is something that's annoying in your life. You're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. And it's, it's passages like this that help us to do it right. And that's why it's so important that we get into the mind and the heart of this, of this widow who is this sacrificial, cheerful giver. That's what, that's what it's supposed to feel like. It's supposed to feel sacrificial, Right? I mean, when we, when we give, and, give towards something, when we routinely give in the church, 
We should feel the sacrifice. There's a lot of other things you could spend that money on, but this is a way we worship together. It's always been that way with God's people. So sacrificial, cheerful, routine giving to the local church, that's meant to be something that is a positive, freeing experience. We're supposed to responsibly look at our budget. Don't get legalistic about it. Don't get legalistic about this. I think too many Christians get legalistic about this, and it makes them not want to give. Legalism is always counterproductive. Just responsibly look at your budget and determine what can you routinely afford to give. And then cheerfully give it, knowing that it's going to be in God's hands to advance his kingdom. And that's the way he's been doing it. One of the ways he's been doing it since, since it's been happening, right? So why don't we give? If you really want to invite conviction in your heart and minds today, pray about maybe why you don't give or don't give what you should. I don't know. That's between you and God. I'm not trying to dissect that individually right now. But if you want to invite conviction in your life, am I giving what I should? Am I giving what I can afford to give? Or am I, am I giving from the right posture? Am I giving from the right heart? Am I giving like this, uh, uh, like with a sacrificial, cheerful heart like this woman? We, we think we can probably rattle off a thousand ideas why we don't like to give or don't want to give. And there are a lot of reasons. I think there are two reasons that this passage confronts directly. So those are the two reasons I want to focus on why we typically don't give. Here are two reasons people decide not to give or not give as much as they should. So, here, here's number one. Some people, and I've heard, I've heard this a lot, I don't give to the local church because if you had the experience I had, you would understand more. I saw a pastor at this church squander all this money or steal all this money and hit the road, hundreds of thousands of dollars gone, and I gave to that church for years, and after that happened, I told myself, I'm never gonna give another dime to the church. Or, or I gave to this church for years or, or, or to this ministry for years, and they boogered it all up, squandered all that cash, spent it in the way they shouldn't have spent it, and so I decided I'm not gonna give a dime. No more giving for me. You know when I hear stories like that, that really resonates with me. And I could probably, I, I could go swap story for story. You get me going on stories that I personally know, you know, gr like the intricate details of where pastors have stolen money from the church. Oh, man, I'm embarrassed at how many stories I could tell you. How many stories I could tell you of where entire churches or groups of people in churches took money that people sacrificially and cheerfully gave and they squander it and spend it in ways that it shouldn't have been spent. It's disgusting. I hate those moments. So when someone starts complaining or griping about how they're not going to give anymore because they had an experience like that, a lot of that really resonates with me. I, I, I sympathize with them. But think about this, like, if we stop doing something that's, that God says is good because someone else does something that's bad, how much sense does that make? Right? If, I, if I decide, hey man, they hoarded and stole all that money, so I'm going to hoard all my money. <laughs> What's the difference between me and them? If I hoard or withhold all of my money from the church just like they hoard and steal money from the church, what's the difference between me and them? Neither one of us are generous towards God's kingdom. Neither one of us are exercising generosity the way God intended. What's the difference? We're just as bad as them. We're the pot calling the kettle black if we behave like that. So don't forget, in the previous paragraph that I referenced at the beginning of my sermon, Jesus couldn't stand that behavior either. 
But what's he say? He says that people like those scribes who behave like that, who, who steal money from the church, who, who you know, shake poor people down and, and squander it just for personal gain and, all, gain and all that stuff, what does he say? He says their condemnation will be greater. In other words, he's saying this. You don't get, it's not your job to get revenge. And withholding your, your, your money from God's kingdom, that's not getting revenge on them. It's not your place to do so anyway. Vengeance is the Lord's. He'll take care of them. They didn't get away with anything. They may think they got away with it. They may think they are currently getting away with it. But vengeance is the Lord's, and their condemnation will be greater. So you either rest in that or you don't. Don't think it's your role to get revenge on everybody who does something bad in the church. Number two, I, I, this is another way, another reason people don't give that I think this text directly confronts. A lot of people don't give because they can't afford much to give. Regardless of why that is, they just can't come up with that much to give at all, so they think, well, the little bit that I could give is so insignificant that it's not going to matter, like it's not going to break, break the bank with this church if I give or not. It's not going to make any difference. So I'm just not going to give, give any money at all. I'll, I'll leave that to, to the rich people. The rich people can give and, and, and I won't because I, I just don't have much. But how, how can you say that in light of a text like this? How could you possibly think that way after what God did with these two little tiny things that this woman puts in the offering receptacle? I mean, think of the differences of the offerings there. These rich people were putting in large sums. And in worldly terms, that is what's most impressive, right? But what, what, do we, what do we have to show for those large sums of money that were given 2,000 years ago? I, I don't know. I can't really say. The, the temple's destroyed. If it went towards the temple, that's gone. Those receptacles, we're not even really sure what they looked like because they were all destroyed and stolen. <laughs> like, so when you read about the, the offering receptacles in commentaries, they argue about what they really looked like and how they functioned because we're not 100% sure. It's all gone. So if it went towards that... There's nothing to show for it. But when it came to this, this widow, this poor widow with her two copper coins, God's been using that. We know exactly how he's used that little offering. He has used that little insignificant offering to inspire his people to give and instruct them on how to give and on how to really be generous for 2,000 years, and it's still going. Like we're studying about this one little seemingly insignificant offering and it's changing how we think about giving right now. That's how those two little tiny things are still changing people today. So like math doesn't work for God like it does for us, right? It just works differently when you're, when you're thinking in terms of a creator. He can take something that's so insignificant and make it the most significant thing. You know, all of those reasons that we tend to come up with to not give, and we can, again, I could probably write a whole other sermon on reasons we decide not to give. All of those reasons are usually based in uh, how broken this world is and how sinful people tend to be. But what we learn in stories like this and moments like this is that we can be free from that brokenness by participating in giving. Being generous and giving the way God intended, it's, it's freeing us. We are freed to be a generous person. We are freed to live in a generous way that God calls us to live. And when we do that, 
We know that we're ultimately giving to a kingdom that is not of this world. We're giving something towards a kingdom that doesn't function like the kingdoms of this world function. And so what seems like is insignificant can be incredibly significant. And God will do with it whatever he plans to do. And he will advance his kingdom through that in whatever way he sees fit. And that's what I want to participate in. I want to know that I'm participating in something that's bigger than all that brokenness. Man, we get lost in all that brokenness. We get so pessimistic about it. We let it tear us down and break us down. And we just think it's just hopeless to function properly as the church when we get lost in that brokenness. God's saying, hey, think about this widow, this poor widow who gave in the way that she gave. And break away from that brokenness. You need to think differently. You're participating in something that's much bigger than what's happening here. You're participating in God's restoration of this world. You're participating in God's redemption of this broken and fallen world when we give. And so when we give, the experience that we're supposed to have is it's this tangible way that we experience this freedom that we're supposed to live with. I don't have to, I don't have to hoard everything. I don't have to have more and more and more. That's not what I'm depending on. That's not what my hope is in, ultimately. I can be generous because I'm a part of a kingdom that has the most generous king that ever was and ever will be. Let's think about these things as we walk into a time of communion. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for moments like this in Scripture that change how we think. Honestly, Lord, I'm, 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 kind of a, I'm kind of ashamed of how few sermons I've preached on giving. And a lot of times just out of the fear of man. Afraid of what people will think or afraid of how people might draw conclusions that aren't true. Lord, even that way of thinking exposes how I am still enslaved to this broken and sinful world. But Lord, it's your word that changes us, that frees us from this way of thinking, that we can loosen our grip on things that are ultimately decaying. We can loosen our grip on the things of this world that moths and rust destroy, as you say and teach. Because Lord, uh, as we loosen our grip on those things, we want to tighten our grip on the things that are not of, a, of this world. On, on, your, on your virtues, on who you are, on your gospel. Help us to have that focus as we participate in church in ways such as giving, Lord, that we wouldn't build bitterness or give reluctantly, but, Lord, that we could be cheerful when we give, that we could give sacrificially, and, Lord, that through a changed heart, you would provide for your kingdom in the way you, you see fit. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.